What have we learned in light of our multi-year experience, the saga we've all been living through since the start of the COVID-19 pandemic? How has COVID-19 impacted our sense of human dignity? How has it impacted our sense of what human persons are owed, not only in the field of medicine, but in the culture broadly? Today, we hear from Dr. Charles Camosi. We've spoken with Dr. Camosi a few times previously on Life, Liberty, and Law, and we hear from him again today. Dr. Camosi spoke as a part of Americans United for Life's annual Summer Fellows Program. Today, we hear his lecture from this summer's cohort. Dr. Camosi speaks on his latest book, Losing Our Dignity, Secularized Medicine and Fundamental Human Equality in Light of All We've Learned from the COVID-19 Pandemic and What May Be to Come. Dr. Camosi is a professor of medical humanities at the Creighton University School of Medicine and is the Monsignor Michael J. Curran Fellow of Moral Theology at St. Joseph's Seminary and College. Dr. Camosi is author, most recently, of Losing Our Dignity, How Secularized Medicine is Undermining Fundamental Human Equality, and is also the author of the forthcoming Bioethics for Nurses, A Christian Moral Vision. I am Tom Shakely, and this is Life, Liberty, and Law. All right, welcome to Life, Liberty, and Law from Americans United for Life, where we advance the human right to life in culture, law, and policy. We hear today from Dr. Charles Camosi, Dr. Camosi speaking to the AUL Summer Fellows cohort. Let's listen in. I have deep respect for AUL and any, any of you fellows who are looking to be more connected um, are certainly in good hands and look forward to seeing... <laughs> what you produced in the future, especially now. We're just in this almost bizarre place where after many decades of uh, working in the movement, it's hard to believe where we're at. But I was asked uh, to focus on my um, uh, book that came out last summer, uh, especially as it impacts um, how we think about bioethics and and pro-life bioethics sort of post-pandemic, as it were, but it's not just about that, as as you'll see. Um, so let me just share my screen, if we can make this work, and try to do some slides here. But basically, I just want to um, make the thesis of my book clear, as it'll kind of um, be the central organizing principle for the presentation. So our secularized and even irreligious culture, especially in medicine and other institutions with incredible power, particularly over life and death, no longer has the resources to explain why all human beings are equal. Uh, and once we abandon the theological idea that all members of the human family are equal because they share a common nature which bears the image and likeness of God, there was nothing left but actualized concepts like autonomy, rationality, self-awareness, will, productivity. As fellows with this group, you probably have heard an even longer list of various points. I mean, which to understand and locate uh, moral value. Human beings quite clearly do not have all these capacities in equal measure. Some don't have them at all. This is especially true of disabled persons. And more and more human populations are falling out of the circle of protection that fundamental human equality provides. It's time to sound the alarm about where this is going. All right. Um, And I'm not an alarmist, but uh, it is time to sound the alarm about this. In fact, most of my work, I try not to be alarmist, but 
but here, here I think we need to sound the alarm. Uh, so what's at the center of, uh, of of this shift that I'm talking about here? Well, I think this slide, this photo of Terry Schiavo's gravestone really kind of encapsulates it in a way. I mean, if you look at this uh, gravestone closely, some, most of you, I hope, know at least a little bit about the case of Terry Schiavo, right? She was the very famous woman who had... Um, uh, who was thought to be in a so-called persistent vegetative state. And there was a big fight uh, back uh, in the early aughts about this that even involved the Supreme Court and was just like roiled the country for a long time. But anyway, this is this, these are the words of her husband that her husband put on her gravestone, who is not the best player in these debates. In fact, it was a really bad player in my view. Uh, but he wrote on her gravestone that she departed this earth February 25th, 1990, and was at peace uh, 2000, March 31st, 2005. Now, what happened in 1990 was that's when she had her catastrophic brain injury and was thought to be in a so-called vegetative state. Um, quote, at peace was when uh, they stopped feeding and hydrating her, and so she was dehydrated and starved to death. Uh, this distinction, I think, is, is super important to, to think about the concept of someone departing this earth, right, but still living... Uh, having leaving a living human body uh, behind is at the heart, I think, of where the mistake was and where uh, what the secularization of medicine has brought us. The idea somehow that this individual had departed this earth is at least puzzling or probably closer to ridiculous. You can at least see eye movements right clearly. And if you go a little bit, she eventually has this amazing reaction to the music, both uh, physical and audible reactions to the music. So, so the idea somehow that that's, um, I mean, this is clearly a living human being, right? A fellow member of the human family, deeply disabled, but I mean, what could it possibly mean to say that she had departed this earth in 1990? What, what's going on here is a classic example of a kind of Manichaean dualism where we're not our bodies. And this, this, as, as time goes on, I just think more and more issues can be related to this fundamental mistake, that, that somehow we are not our bodies. Some people trace it all the way back to kind of Descartes' cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore, I'm, I'm a, somehow a thinking thing that's disconnected from my body, or, you know, I could doubt my body exists or something like that. Um, but but the, the fundamental mistake I'm pointing to here was actually, um, the groundwork for it was laid... Um, much before that. So let me uh, click to the next slide here. Um, this is Dr. Uh, Robert Ebert, and I want to introduce you to him as a um, really key figure in the foundational uh, move that, that put us on this wrong path. Um, he was dean of Harvard Medical School from 1965 to, to 77. Um, he had a deep uh, problem, however, and that problem's name was Henry K. Beecher. And if you know anything about bioethics, this is a towering and indeed, at least my view, kind of infamous figure. He was a very famous anesthesiologist and chairman of Harvard Medical School's Institutional Review Board. He kept pushing Dean Ebert to change the definition of death. This is a quote of his, every major hospital has patients stacked up waiting for suitable uh, donors. So that was very clear what the motivation was. The motivation was to change the definition of death because we needed more donors. And he succeeded in petitioning Ebert to establish what, what he would chair as the famous or infamous 1968 ad hoc committee of Harvard Medical School to examine the definition of brain death. 
And he also succeeded in getting what he wanted, but only after a failed first draft of the committee's report in which uh, Dean Ebert said, it suggests you wish to define death in order to make viable organs more readily available to those requiring transplants. So the motivation for the definition from a cardiopulmonary definition of death to a neurological one is transparent to anybody who looks at the history. They wanted more organs. And so they got uh, a definition of death which produced more organs. But despite this way of maximizing resources, um, this, this origins is a way of maximizing resources, this view of the human person, as you probably know, has become the law in all 50 states, with only New Jersey really, depending on how you read the law in Illinois and New York, maybe Illinois and New York, but really only New Jersey allowing for a very clear religious freedom uh, to act in a way that's different. Um, and this, the religious freedom exemption in New Jersey would become very important in the story of Jahai McMath. Some of you may have heard this story from just a few years ago. Um, uh, and I, I guess you can't hear the video, so I'm not gonna play uh, the video, uh, which is basically a, a news story on uh, Jahai McMath. But basically, uh, her uh, she had this really terrible, um, again, catastrophic brain injury after having a dental procedure go awry um, and was thought to be brain dead. Um, in fact, uh, as you'll see in a moment, her medical team was absolutely convinced uh, that she was brain dead. But um, let's see if I can, sh even though you can't hear, hear it, I can show the video. That's her mom. She really fought for her to make sure that she was taken care of. So there's her dropping something on command. There's a place where, oh, they ask her to move her foot. She even, Jahai was uh, so alive that um, that uh, she actually got her first period while she was supposedly dead, according to the state of California. Um, and in some cases, though not in this one, uh, those who are in the so-called brain dead state have even gestated children to birth. But just to give you a sense of how confident the secular medical establishment, and, and to be fair, a lot of the religious one too, uh, would be, but this, in this case, a secular med medical establishment was, um, this is the, the, P, the chief of pediatrics at UC San Francisco where she was. This is according um, to uh, their lawyers. Uh, the doctor said, um, what is it you don't understand um, Dr. Duran condescendingly asked, and then according to Jahai's mother, stepfather, grandmother, brother, and their lawyer who took notes, Duran pounded his fist on the table saying she's dead, dead, dead. So not only did they just kind of follow the law about what, you know, California's law at the time, and again, the law in all 50 states, um, with again, New Jersey being the only exception, uh, uh, this medical team, at least the head of the medical team, was so confident he was willing to to uh, even, in, even in the middle of a kind of a racially charged moment for the United States, just condescendingly tell this family, what is it you don't understand and pound his fist on the table saying she's dead three different times. Um, what Jahai's family and, and mom in particular ended up doing was take her to New Jersey, right? And, uh, and as a result of that, she was able to get uh, care in New Jersey and lived um, uh, five more years. So, I'm not the only one who thinks this was a foundational shift. Um, Peter Singer also does. As you may know, if you know anything about my work, uh, you know that uh, Peter Singer, uh, Peter Singer's work is very important for my own. I think he's one of the few folks uh, on quote unquote the other side who actually gets a lot of the history right and a lot of what's at stake uh, right. 
Um, in his classic book, Rethinking Life and Death, The Collapse of Our Traditional Ethics, he, he sees this shift also as transformative um, and argued that it's, of course, absurd to claim that human organisms which fight off disease, gestate children, enter puberty, react to bodily trauma with increased heart rate, adrenaline, are in any sense biologically or medically dead. He says what in fact has happened with the broad acceptance of the Harvard Brain Death um, Commission is what the subtitle of the book suggests, the collapse of our traditional religious ethics. There has been a Copernican revolution against fundamental human equality, and the idea that human beings bearing a common nature that reflects the image and language of God, that's been abandoned in favor of an ethic which locates moral value again and something else from that earlier list. And it's interesting to note um, that Singer struggles to come up with a basis for any uh, equality at all, um, which I think is a, a legitimate struggle if you abandon the theological uh, basis here. So he and I actually very much agree. We actually agree on a lot, but like many of our agreements, we disagree about how to interpret where to go in light of those um, agreements on, on, on both history and kind of like the shift that took place. And I don't know if you, it seems to me, for those of us that are paying attention to this, that maybe there's um, some shifting going on about this um, when it comes to brain death. Despite the head of Jahai's medical team pounding his fist on the table in front of his family and condescendingly saying, what is it you don't understand? It turns out that a lot of the folks um, who were skeptical of this were were right about Jahai. But but it's interesting that the, that the um, at least in many circumstances, the reaction has not been to jettison the concept of brain death. The, the, the move is to make a different kind of category and say, well, actually, she wasn't um, brain dead, brain dead. Um, she has something called responsive unawake syndrome, right? This new, this neologism they kind of invented uh, for her, despite the fact that um, she definitely uh, was considered brain dead by the state of, she even had a death certificate. So she had a death certificate from the state of California when she got her first period. And she's got a death certificate from the state of California, even after someone writing in the Journal of Neurological Sciences says, actually, she wasn't brain dead. She's in this responsive unawake syndrome. But then uh, this all reminds me of PVS, right? So persistent vegetative state is an offensive term. No human being is a vegetable, of course, but that's kind of what we use. Um, it, it calls to mind PVS because that's kind of the next question to ask, especially in light of what we talked about to open the, the, the presentation, right? Like the case of Terry Schiavo and her husband saying she departed this earth um, in 1990, but was at peace in, in 2005. Um, if the question of brain death uh, leads us in a particular direction, it might lead us to the question of persistent vegetative state and the way I'm telling the story and the way I tell the story in the book. And again, I'm not the only one. Joe Finns, who wrote this amazing book, if you want to read more about some of the, it's a little dated, not, it's not dated, but it's getting older because there have been so many um, interesting uh, new findings, including from him. But this this great book called Rights Comes to Mind, Rights Come to Mind just totally blew the cover off of any um, sort of received wisdom about uh, PBS. And I'm not quite sure why the secular kind of bioethics and medical establishment haven't taken him more seriously because he's a very secular, well-known figure, past president of the American Society of Bioethics and Humanities. He's not at all pro-life. In fact, he and I have debated that once or twice over the years. Um, and we still hear the term PBS stated as if, though he and others who are up to date on the science simply don't exist, right? Like, or aren't there. But after Finns were without excuse, we now know that a relatively high percentage of patients, and he documents this, lumped into this category respond well to therapeutic interventions. Um, 
And still, despite the fact he says the vegetative state has become something of a catechism in North American bioethics, which I think is a very interesting word to use because there really is that kind of commitment to have this position despite the evidence, which is which is really interesting and informative, I think. Um, but Finns, again, a secular, not pro-life person, speaks in this book very dramatically and movingly about the need to think of this, uh, the battle for this population as being one of basic civil rights. And even before this book came out, we kind of knew there was a study done, you may have heard about it, um, where a, a certain percentage of uh, those in a vegetative state via fMRI machine were able to answer yes or no questions by imagining that they were playing tennis or reading in their room. So the mortar part of their brain or whatever other part of their brain would light up whether the questions were yes or no. And I think it was somewhere around 25, 30% of those in a so-called PVS, right, were able to answer correctly. So um, there's there's actually been some real loosening of this category, or at least what we should think about this category, maybe both, for quite a long time now. And this book absolutely blew the lid off of it, or it, it should have, I don't, again, because of the kind of commitment that so many folks have to um, the kind of anthropo moral anthropology that's uh, that's come about as a result of this uh, Singerian Copernican revolution. I don't think we're going there, but um, but we should go there if we follow the facts. Um, and he gives two reasons, Finns does, for why um, this has been met with still uh, prognostic pessimism and therapeutic nihilism. He thinks that the commitment of healthcare resources is just too large and the rejection of the perceived fixity of so-called PVS could undermine the, the hard one right to die. That's his, that's his view, not necessarily his personal view, but that's the view of why he thinks people aren't taking this as much seriously. So it's, again, it's ideology that's, that's driving this. Um, not, a, not an, not a, um, not a honest, uh, wrestling with the facts. Um, and he, even again, he's not anything but a pro-lifer, but he asks provocatively in the book without, the futility of the permanent vegetative state of permanent unconsciousness, are we obliged to promote a culture of life? And even suggest a few times that there might be a looming threat to abortion rights, which is where I go next in the book. So there is, uh, this takes on a new uh, kind of uh, feeling for sure, uh, thinking about what happened uh, just a few, you know, it's three or four weeks ago now, three or four weeks ago. Um, but but let's think for a moment, too, about, um, especially given how resources, right, resources drove the first two, um, a, a big part of the first two, right? So resources when it comes to um, organ donation, right, lack of organs, um, and that connection to brain death. And then, again, going back to um, Finn's. Uh, the commitment of healthcare resources was is considered kind of too large, despite the fact that we now know that these kind of therapeutic interventions can work. Um, Finns is convinced that one one of the major reasons that we don't do it is because of healthcare resources. Well, let's think about resources in this context, and specifically in the Casey decision, which uh, happily is no more, but I think is still worth very much worth focusing on here, because this is still very much part of the reasoning, especially that will happen at the state level. So maybe if those of you are familiar with the with the case, Planned Parenthood versus Casey, which of course replaced Roe versus Wade, um, this is in 1992, um, the first time we were expecting to get an overturn and didn't. Um, this is, we were happily got the overturn this time around. I was still kind of skeptical and part of what, because of what happened uh, with Casey. I was a senior in high school at the time. It was devastating. But um, 
here's a really important quote from from that decision. For for over two for two decades of economic and social developments, people have organized their intimate relationships and made choices to define their views of themselves and their places in society in reliance on the availability of abortion in the event that contraception should fail. The ability of women to participate equally in the economic and social life of the nation has been facilitated by their ability to control their reproductive lives. So here again, right, for the third time in these sets of issues, the reference is to allocation of resources, right, and just allocation of resources, the need for allocation of resources. In this case, it's resources for women, uh, and, and given their um, economic and social uh, lives in the nation. And just to put um, a face on what this means in a certain context, perhaps a few of you may remember uh, the case, the notorious case of Dr. Ulrich Klofner, who was a famous, infamous abortion doctor in Indiana, and I think we're also worked in Illinois. Uh, he kept thousands of bodies, prenatal bodies and prenatal body parts in his garage and even the trunk of his car. Remember that story? Local media covered it uh, really carefully and really in depth, which was great. Uh, not great, but really important. Um, but here's why I want to bring, here's a part of the, their coverage that I think really fits with this kind of narrative I'm trying to tell, um, unfold here. Uh, local media uh, from the 2019 CBS Chicago story started digging around into his broader dealings, including an interview with a woman whose name was kept private, um, who was, quote, treated, I think that's really obviously the wrong word given what we're about to learn here, uh, this woman was really distraught because she thought to myself, oh, my God, I did this awful thing when she when the when this news broke about his his keeping of the bodies around. Oh, my God, I did this awful thing and my children are possibly held in a box somewhere in a house. I cried. So Klofner uh, performed an abortion on her twin children. That's why she talks about children, plural. Uh, she said to myself, I just can't bring kids into this situation. I can't bring my kids into poverty. I can't bring my kids to a father who won't love them or want them. And his response um, invokes something very important about what Planned Parenthood versus Casey was trying to say. Uh, if you don't do this, it will cost you near, uh, yearly near, nearly $240,000 to take care of a kid. So would you rather deal with that or would you rather go home and just go back to your regular life? There was no emotion. There was no empathy. Fortunately, that's just the public. Uh, you know, this is just a public story, right? A highlighted story, a famous story. But this happens, I'm sure you're aware all the time, uh, which is why the idea that this is these folks are offering choice is just totally ridiculous. So let's kind of I promised that this would be related to the pandemic in some way. Let's let's just pause here because I'm about to take it there and just uh, think for a moment about the confluence of several interrelated factors that have put us on our current kind of pre pre pandemic trajectory. Uh, first, the secularization of medicine and the rise and uh, dominance of irreligious bioethics, um, the new Copernican revolution against fundamental human equality, massive pressure, uh, real or imagined based on medical and other resources, interlocking and mutually reinforcing uh, independent views about moral status in relation to brain death, PBS, abortion, uh, and more. So with that in mind, I, in the book, try to think about what's next and, and who's next. Um, and here is where the pandemic, I think, really revealed that in spades. Maybe you saw Politico's reporting that um, uh, the summer, the first summer wave of dementia deaths added thousands to the pandemic's deadly toll, but they weren't dying of COVID. 
right? They were dying of something else. In fact, the, the numbers were so large that uh, the chief of mort mortality statistics at the CDC said there's something going on. It needs to be sorted out. Um, AP also had um, reporting uh, that, that talked about uh, dementia deaths, yes, but a, a very large percentage of, of dementia deaths in nursing homes or deaths in nursing homes are, in fact, uh, dementia deaths, deaths with people with dementia. Um, but the AP really found something very similar. There's this huge number of people who died not of COVID, uh, but of just kind of neglect, or were actually we're just not totally sure, probably neglect. Um, and here is where I think we need to focus on the next shoe to drop, the next population to lose their fundamental human equality, and that's people with dementia. And here, I think Singer is also uh, is actually prescient, um, though in a disturbing way, uh, but but in a correct way, uh, in a way that reveals something that's true. Um, Singer has said all for a long time now that anybody who loses their rationality and self awareness, including someone who loses their rationality and self awareness from dementia, uh, no longer counts as a person, doesn't have the same rights as a person. Uh, and and we actually should not spend resources on those individuals, especially given the amount of human persons who are without resources, um, necessary resources. We should only spend resources on uh, human persons, not human non-persons. And there, the reason I have the bullet point there about Cora Singer is I thought I'd just tell a quick story about his mother, Cora Singer, who herself uh, got um, uh, later stage dementia and loss of rationality and self-awareness and failed to count as a person according to his definition. And uh, interestingly, he did spend his resources on her. And when he was pressed on this, he said, it's sometimes difficult when it's your mother. He didn't give up his actual position though in classic Singerian fashion. He thought his position was still right. He just kind of didn't feel strong enough to execute it. And a lot of my, especially more pro-life students uh, kind of castigate him for this, but uh, I, I think it's a good warning for Christians not to hold somebody else to a different standard. We don't want to be held to because um, if the truth of the, of the Christian ethic is, is dependent on our living it out um, perfectly, we're, we're in the Christian ethics is in serious trouble. Happily, it's not uh, up to uh, our living it perfectly for it to be true. Um, but it also has this connection, I think, to Joe Finns' book, Rights Come to Mind, because in part of his, he did some really wonderful um, qualitative uh, sociology, qualitative interviews as part of his research for the book. And in one of those interviews, there was... Um, interview you mentioned that there was um that their parents nursing home had a floor where quote just they put it just everybody um who had no opportunity no prospect of ever being very alive these are this guy's words again alzheimer's patients people who were in pbs so they had this horrible second floor they went up there it was filthy the staff was bad end quote um so so we're already we're kind of putting folks into these similar kinds of categories there was just this floor where they kind of dumped uh, Alzheimer's patients and, and PBS patients, um, and it was horrible. The use his words, it was horrible. And the pandemic, I think, revealed something very important about this this being this being next. Um, and if I if you could listen to the <laughs> if you could listen to the audio, I'd pay I'd play you a, a short clip of the um, the trailer for my book because it has some of the uh, arguments I make about this. Um, but basically, what I argue is that. Um, during and after the pandemic, or in this phase, this kind of phase we're in, unclear phase of the pandemic right now, we've seen, as I'm sure you know, just massive numbers of um, healthcare providers leave, 
an already understaffed field, right, of elder care um, and geriatrics. And, uh, and it looks like there's now uh, only three options available to us because the numbers of, of people with Alzheimer's um, and other kinds of dementia are going to double over the next 20 years. and They're gonna triple over the next 30 years and there is not a cure in sight. Uh, and so if we're already at this stage now, what is it gonna look like 20 years from now when it doubles, 30 years from now when it triples? Uh, my book's essentially conclusion is there are only really three ways we can go here. Although if you have some other ones, I'd be interested to hear. I'm assuming we're gonna have some time for exchange and question and answer. Uh, Something akin to robot care. Um, you know, I put care in square, uh, scare quotes because, of course, an algorithm can't care for you. But if you're paying attention um, to this, these sets of issues, you already know that there are uh, robots who are in positions in certain kinds of nursing homes and other clinical settings um, serving the elderly and, and those with dementia uh, who are algorithms, not people and uh, not human beings. And uh, and that is just going to explode over the next few years if we don't intentionally say uh, to this population, no, we need human care, human interaction. Uh, that's what fundamental human equality means. But if we're going to say, uh, maybe in part because of, of worries again about scarce resource allocation, uh, well, maybe these individuals are human non-persons like these other kind. Uh, we could move towards uh, robot care and slouch towards robot care as a result. Um, the other thing, uh, and especially I think this will happen if people imagine human beings imagine their futures as being cared for by robots and not people, is straight up no chaser euthanasia. So I think a lot of folks will demand, in fact, especially as this population comes to terms with this um, coming down the line, will demand uh, that they not be treated by robots and instead um, have the opportunity to kill themselves rather than be uh, flung into those, uh, you know, those uh, floors where uh, where uh, you know, they're, they're with the horrific uh, uh, care levels and, and just horrors in general. Um, and then there's the, the opportunity to restore uh, human dignity, which is obviously where, where I think we uh, should go. Uh, but in order to do that and restore human dignity, restore human equality, we got to undo basically this trajectory that, oh, by the way, the, here's just a few um, stories that that show that we're, this is not just coming out of nowhere. So um, activists want to force caregivers to starve dementia patients to death. Canada already dis, um, legalized euthanasia for disabled people. Here's an amazing story that BioEdge Bio covered, but actually comes from a Hastings Center uh, peer-reviewed article with two reputable bioethicists arguing for advanced directive implants for people with dementia so that you can still kill yourself even if you're not able to later. And, and then the New York Times did this amazing expose on uh, the fact that um, in part because of understaffing, uh, uh, the uh, physicians working for nursing homes regularly write scripts for antipsychotic drugs who don't need them. Why? To keep them docile, to keep them in a essentially what they call a chemical straitjacket so that they don't need to be taken care of because frankly, they don't have the resources to take care of them. That's another thing about the allocation of resources that is so important running throughout all four of these examples. And that will continue to become even more important again as this population uh, doubles and triples. So how to respond to this? Uh, as I mentioned to open, my main goal is to raise the alarm here and say, uh, it's time to speak out very clearly about this. And 
AUL and many of the many of those who would be attracted to a, you know a program like this obviously um, are sympathetic and and are probably already raising the alarm in their ways. But 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 maybe it's time to raise the alarm in a very specific way about this particular population, this population with dementia. Um, and I think uh, we should have no shame for those of us that do have theological commitments. We should have no shame about those theological commitments. It's it's not only, of course, the case that all of us, whether religious or secular, have foundational commitments that don't have arguments that we just hold it on the on the basis of faith or intuition or some other authority. Um, but it's particularly the case that this this idea of fundamental human equality, especially in the United, but not only in the United States, um, relies on a theological commitment, uh, right? Um, that God has created us all equal um, in God's own image and likeness as fellow human beings, fellow human animals, in fact. Homo sapiens reflects the image and likeness of God, right? That's what unites us all as being fellow members of the species Homo sapiens, uh, which bears the image and likeness of God in a very specific uh, way. The reason why I think also that we should focus on dementia, in addition to it being kind of the next step and the urgent step, um, is that uh, it has not yet been politicized. So obviously one of the major lifts of the pro-life movement over the next several, um, well, decades, I think it's probably gonna be fair to say, um, to try to change heart and, hearts and minds on abortion is gonna be that, I mean, it's, it's even a cliche to say that abortion is politicized. It's hyper-politicized, right? It's almost impossible even to have conversations across difference, political difference on these questions. Uh, but dementia, not, right? Um, uh, dementia, not. So, uh, in fact, there's quite a bit of uh, activism on the on the left that would otherwise identify as pro-choice in favor of patients with dementia, right? To say that it doesn't matter um, what their level of ability is. It doesn't matter uh, what capacities they have. It just matters that they're a fellow human being. Right? And, uh, and there's a whole uh, anti-ableist, pro-disability rights, um, uh, activists, uh, uh, set of groups out there, right. Uh, that, that are natural allies actually. And actually we, if you're familiar with how pro-lifers all around the world have resisted euthanasia more broadly, you know, that in many cases we already partner with these groups. Um, but here's a really important way to do that. It seems to me. Um, so that's actually the second of the, the I'll finish with this. Um, three steps that I think going into the future. Building dialogue is kind of like the medium term. Uh, maybe in the book I talk about it being from like, oh, I don't know, two or three years to 10 years, you know, try to gear up over two or three years and, and then spend, you know, a decade or so just trying to like build dialogue with, with other religious groups, with disability rights groups, and to try to recover this fundamental vision of fundamental human dignity and equality again, and push back against the trajectory that I just tried to articulate. Before that, though, the things we can do immediately, right, um, is uh, in our, as individuals, families, and communities, especially when it comes to dementia, is have this population as a priority, right? Make them a priority in our, with, with ourselves as individuals, but families and communities in particular. Um, I've talked at length about, you know, you should even get into the point of how we think about our housing, right? And like, um, and our parents. Um, I heard the good, I uh, gave this talk a, a few months ago 
Um, and one of the best ideas I heard uh, from from that one was somebody who said this could, should be part of marriage counseling, right? So, so when people get together um, uh, to do marriage counseling before they get married, a big part of their discussion should be about like how do I take how are we going to take care of our parents, right? And what decisions are we going to make um, to take care of our parents? A huge part of the story is that these folks are alone, and probably we're going to slouch towards robot care because families just aren't around; they just aren't in the area even to take care of to take care of folks. And then um, communities, right? Uh, churches, uh, other kinds of local institutions um, need to be part of this story as well. And that can, those things can happen almost immediately. And then you have the kind of medium, medium range goal of building dialogue. But if that dialogue fails, um, and I'm a big champion of dialogue, huge champion of dialogue, I don't think, um, I don't know whether we'll fail or not. So I, I think we should give it uh, every chance we can. Uh, we should really, especially as religious groups, and I'm speaking here as a Catholic in particular, um, we should really be uh, at the forefront of, of getting ready for what comes next. So if we are moving towards some version of robot care slash euthanasia, um, we need to step up and be institutions and build institutions uh, that will not participate in that. And in the book, I, I mean, of course, it's the classic, you know, <laughs> Nazi fallacy, right? Uh, but but in the book, I think there is a really important uh, analogy to draw to how many religious, not all, but of course, many religious groups in Nazi Germany resisted the kind of uh, euthanasia programs, including of the elderly and the disabled at that time. Uh, maybe those could be a model for us uh, as we go forward thinking about um, how to take care of this already large, but, in but over the next two to three decades, massively large population in need of in need of care, in need of protection, frankly. And that's what I got for you today. I guess my question is kind of um, general. It is, uh, do you think that there would be interest in a push in establishing kind of a cultural shift and prioritizing the elderly, right, and dementia patients, um, because I feel like they're often devalued in the education system. And so you have young children growing up uh, not having learned that priority. And maybe most people don't think about it until, like you're saying, they get to the point where they're getting married or older than that. Um, do you think that would be something that would be implemented in some way uh, in the education system, or would there not be enough interest for that to take place? No, I think that that's great. That would be a very important, um, you know, that would be an example of a of a kind of local community group, right? The local school system um, to try to inculcate that kind of value. That would be a really important uh, thing to do, along with churches, along with families. Um, but yeah, most of most of what I'm calling for here is just even calling it out as an issue at all, because as your question rightly kind of uh, suggests, uh, it's an uncomfortable topic for for most people to bring up. Right. That's one of the reasons why one of the multiple reasons why, but an important reason why we've gotten to the situation that we've gotten into. Right. Because um, we've we've basically ignored it. It's part of how throwaway culture works. I wrote a book called Resisting Throwaway Culture a few years back, and it's the way throwaway culture works, right? We use language and we create institutions that push these populations out of our conscience, uh, conscious experience, uh, out of our eyesight, out of our 
uh, out of our ability to encounter on a regular basis. So the extent that we can build housing, we could have educational programs, we could, um, I even thought regarding education, like wouldn't it be really great to have educational um, opportunities that had were multi-generational, right? Intergenerational with young people interacting with the elderly, right? Interacting with people, maybe even with dementia, right? To kind of uh, do the opposite of the kind of throwaway culture we have and create a culture of encounter. Um, between uh, our very oldest and our very youngest uh, folks. And they're ironically, or not ironically, but like um, in a way that make, makes this make sense even more, uh, young people in school and older people in these homes are two of the most lonely populations out there, right? Um, in need of, in desperate need of, of interaction, especially, you know, um, middle schoolers and high schoolers are deeply, deeply lonely people these days. Uh, this is even before the pandemic, which has kind of only accelerated that trend. So what if we what if we thought creatively about our schools in a way that this kind of intergenerational um, uh, solidarity could be could be part of the education system itself? I think that would be really interesting. Yeah, I had a unique experience growing up because I went to both a private and a public school. Um, and my private Christian school had a mandatory community service aspect uh, where every year you had to get a certain number of hours. And one of the many options would be interacting with um, the elderly in some way, uh, potentially um, people with dementia. And so I just didn't know if there was uh, if that was something that was garnering a lot of interest or not, um, because I think that was impactful for me as uh, a young child. Any other questions or thoughts? Just yesterday, like yesterday, we we uh, we heard from Wesley Smith on uh, by on topic on various type uh, topics of biotech and intersection of various other topics like animal rights and animal welfare that sort of thing and he had brought up uh, a, a big a big part of the problem now is that it used it seemed to be it seemed to be like years uh, decades ago there were common premises we'd be premises we'd be able to start from sort of have a dialogue from there now when we can't even agree on those threshold things we're kind of locked in the state of consistent disagreement and not being able to like things that were once self-evident are constantly well, they're not disproven but they're not, i wouldn't say they're disproved as much as they're just consistently under attack yeah so there's a lot there and those are really important reflections um you know i started out as a philosophy major and and uh and even spent a good part of my first several years as a moral theologian really kind of vacillating between, um, you know, kind of translating my deepest theological beliefs into a kind of philosophical language um, along the lines that, that you're suggesting there. And I guess at times it, it, it kind of works and it opens up, you know, conversations you otherwise wouldn't have. And there's a place and a time for that, for sure. And it's prudence that all that guides a lot of these things, um, for sure. But I think we've seen... Um, over the last, uh, you know, four or five decades, in particular, as um, theologically uh, motivated people uh, have really either just abandoned their theology, or again translated it into a kind of foreign philosophical language to 
to have conversations along the lines you suggest, what has happened is not what we hoped would have happened, right? Which is a kind of meeting of the minds where we kind of coalesced around, you know, a, a common language around human equality and dignity that we agree with. What what ha- what has happened instead is something quite different, right? It's what's happened is a virtual abandonment. Even though we kind of speak as if we believe in human equality, what we really believe in are is the equality of certain human beings that have traits we um, find important, so or significant. Uh, so I don't know, like my sense, of, I think you're right that in certain contexts, that's the way to go. But I think in other contexts, we need to be more aggressive and more, um, more, more confident in expressing our theological beliefs, not only because they are the basis for fundamental human equality, as far as I can tell, and I believe very strongly, but because no one really enters the public sphere without first principles or, um, you know, chief loves is another way to talk about it, or, you know, stories of ultimate concern that drive them in ways that are very analogous to what explicitly religious believers um, have. Um, and so for years, for decades, we've been playing this game where it was only explicitly religious believers who had to kind of check their most um, beautiful and articulate visions of the good at the door and try to find a different way to say it. Whereas others were, you know, perfectly fine, you know, act utilitarians, no problem, right? Care feminists, come on in, uh, you know, but, uh, but if you're a Thomist, you know, then, then, then leave that stuff uh, behind or, or again, translate it into another language. Um, and especially with the, at this late hour, when the concept of fundamental human equality seems to be going away altogether, I think it's important to stand up and say, uh, this is why, <laughs> you know, uh, we, we believe human beings are equal because God created them that way. And uh, and that's going to certainly limit certain kinds of conversations. There is there is a downside or there is a reason people move in this direction. Um, and again, I think as a matter of prudential judgment, there are times to speak that way. But, but I think we need to re- kind of recover a lost confidence in the public sphere as though, for those of us who are theologically inclined, especially given that the stakes are so high. You think that also starts with resolving or at least addressing direct theological conflicts within um, a given uh, a d- given denominations? Like For the Catholic, sure. Like Catholic yeah. Church readily comes to mind. I can't speak much about... I, I, I can't speak to whatever disputes might be occurring in um, other... Uh, nominations, but I imagine they're present just as. I mean, there's always debates going on in Catholic moral theology, but um, it looks like the, this version of the Pontifical Academy for Life, or at least its leadership, has views um, which I don't agree with, uh, and which many moral theologians don't agree with, and uh, and so yes, there's and uh, I mean, there's a wide range of views across many different Christian denominations, and of course other religions. So. Um, no, no, that doesn't preclude any of those debates, makes them even more important. However, a lot of the debates are um, not ones which would really fall on this question, say, of like, um, though there are debates, of course, about brain death, and even in certain certain circumstances, a vegetative state, there aren't that many um, Christians, Catholics that I know of who are going to make the case that Peter Singer makes, for instance, about those with dementia. Now, maybe they should, based on their other kinds of commitments, but um, 
but maybe this is again this is again one one set of issues that has not been politicized it's not ideologically polarized uh, in the way that these other issues are and could be fertile ground for debate and discussion not only uh, uh, you know within churches but more broadly thanks charlie um quick question for you what kind of like um legislation uh whether it be a state level or federal level do you think would be uh, that you see would be good for these these sort of these sort of things yeah two come to mind first is i think we need to be just as with the very famous baby doe case back in the 80s with the baby who was um not didn't have um a treatment for esophageal atresia and essentially starved to death as a result of that was starved to death right um because of a disability in that case down syndrome um, and the rallying cry that was heard around this country across all parties and across almost all ideologies um you know could we and that legislation was passed um, which is actually kind of going away now or at least is being slow walked and rolled uh, in certain clinical contexts but if we could have a similar kind of meeting of the minds about dementia about non-treatment of those with dementia right because this is also you know if we're going to put people in uh, you know people with dementia in chemical straitjackets until they die is that really that different from what happened to baby doe i mean in both cases it's an omission right but it's um you know it's very similar actually it seems to me and, and the basis on which it's done is very similar. The, the ideology behind it, the dismissal of the human dignity that's still fully present um, is, is uh, at the level of nature and kind is, is, is also there. So, so could we have a baby doe kind of legislative suite of reactions, um, style baby doe, a baby doe style suite of reactions uh, legislatively to this? I think we probably could. It does get into it does get into the realm of you know action versus omission, which can be tricky and intention is sometimes difficult to figure out. But again, there was this huge, monstrous. I mean, some people would say that was the birth of bioethics. Even was that case. Um, I don't think that's right, but it was certainly a, a very important swing hinge moment in history of medicine and bioethics for sure. And so that's one side. And then maybe the other side of it would be how do we incentivize, um, how can we incentivize families to take care of their loved ones at home as opposed to in these, um, in these warehouses of death? And because uh, and, it could be legislation to address the warehouses of death too, but those will require lots of money, frankly. So we need to decide if we're going to put, put that in. But it's actually much cheaper to take, even if you have, you know, in-home in nursing care and other kinds of in-home care. Uh, it's actually much cheaper to take care of your loved one at home. It's what the, it's what the resident and patient want. It's what the family wants most of the time when they understand anyway what's available. And it's, it's obviously just better on so many levels, and it's cheaper on top of everything. So, uh, if there would be. And this was actually in, in a, a part of Build Back Better, which I found really frustrating that so many things were just thrust into that bill that were good. Some were not, obviously, but some were good. If we could, it's actually cost effective to fund in-home uh, and reimburse for fund uh, for uh, funding in-home care 
uh, and that would be something that I think would be really important as an incentive to have these uh, elderly loved ones and demented loved ones taking care of it at home. Awesome. Thanks for that. Rich, appreciate that. Well, Charlie, thank you so much. We really, really appreciate this. This is a lot to think through. I think uh, we've been kind of drinking through a fire hose all week. So it's kind of like, wow, this is uh, this is this is more to think on because uh, pro-life is uh, not just about abortion, but it's all these things. So really appreciate your time and uh, and always appreciate your work. And I, I know I, I'm specifically looking forward to reading your new your new book. Yeah. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thanks to all of you. Thank you so much. We appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. All right. That was Dr. Charles Camosi, Professor of Medical Humanities at the Creighton University School of Medicine and the Monsignor Michael J. Curran Fellow of Moral Theology at St. Joseph's Seminary and College, speaking to the AUL Summer Fellows cohort. If you enjoyed today's episode with Dr. Charles Camosi, please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, wherever you listen to the show, rate it and leave a review. Until next time, I am Tom Shakely. Thank you for listening to Life, Liberty, and Law.